Welcome to Big Questions, Marlena. I'm told that you're a devoted listener, which is very cool since you were born on Christmas Eve of 2018. So happy to have you. And I want to send you a Sportique hoodie, but they don't make them that small. When my friends at Sportique heard about you, they said, hold on, hold on. We do have cozy Sportique baby blankets. As soon as I get your address, Marlena, one is going to be coming your way. Your big question blanket. I thought to myself, what else can we do special for Marlena? How about a little storytelling? How about we go way back into the old archives and pull out a story George Clooney told me years ago before I even heard of podcasts. It's a story about when George was a little kid and it explains how he became a master storyteller himself. You can actually see an animated version of this story on Medium if you Google George Clooney, What I've Learned, Animation. I give a lot of talks about workshops and storytelling. In this day and age, if you want to pierce through the fog of data overload, you'd better be able to tell a good story. Stories grasp people's attention and can lead to everything from sales to great friendships. The tale George tells contains all the basic elements to making a great story. One, you start with a vulnerable character. In this case, there are two. George and his older sister. Then you put them through some obstacles. In this case, these are invented by two wacky uncles. You'll notice the important thing, Marlena, is to make sure that the listener is always leaning in to hear what comes next. One day down the road, I hope you'll get to Ireland and be able to sit in a pub. You'll notice the chairs there have no backs, and that's purposeful. The stools are there to make the people listening to the stories lean in. That's what you want to do as a storyteller. Make the listener lean in. And at the end, maybe their head goes back as the story comes to a resolution. So here goes, Marlena. Here's George Clooney talking about what it was like to be a little kid with two wacky uncles and the audio was done way back, so not going to be the same quality that you're hearing on my Zoom recorder, but still, you're going to like this. I was a happy kid. I had a great growing up. Funny parents. My mom and dad both very funny. And it was part of our family business that you had to be able to tell a story. My uncle George was a B-17 bomber pilot did some 20-some sorties over Germany, you know, in 1944, like the real deal. Uncle Chick was in the Army, but he was never in combat at all. He lost a finger from some accident. He had a a glass eye because he'd gotten meningitis when he was a kid. He didn't have his teeth. He had dentures. And uh, I was about five, and my sister was about six. And my Uncle George would go, Chick, come in here. He really sounded a lot like Al Pacino in Sen of a Woman. He would get drunk and go, I kill more people with a touch of my thumb than you ever want to look upon to add to your collection. Michael George would go, Chick, Chick, live a hard life. Chick, take off your finger. And like Uncle Chick would do some sort of move like that, you know, and you could see he was missing his finger and we could feel it. Nah, Chick, take out your teeth from on the table, therefore. And he'd take his dentures out and sit on the table and we're like, he'd go, nah, Chick, take out your eye. 
lay it on the table there. Uncle Chico would take this glass eye out and stick it on the table. My sister and I would be staring at it like petrified. And then Michael George would go, nah, chick. Unscrew your head. And we would just run out of the room like, ah! To this day, I'm convinced that Uncle Chick could actually unscrew his head, too. I'm pretty sure of it. Marlena, I don't know if you have any uncles like that. If you do, you'll probably end up being a good storyteller yourself. Because the resolution of that story is that when you have eccentric family members like that, you'll have tales to tell. Thanks for coming along, Marlena, and thank you to Sam Beauty. I've got my intent bracelets coming your way to you and Joss. Sam has been kind enough to send his analysis on the way I'm developing the ads on Big Questions. As many of you know, advertising was new to me when I started this podcast, and I hope that you're feeling as comfortable with the way I've included my sponsors as I am. I love these companies. Check out the hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants on sportique.com. So comfortable, they'll actually make your day better. That's sportique, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. Without the U, after the Q, that's what makes it unique. And my intent. Go to myintent.org to check out the bracelets that inspire you to think. How can a bracelet make you think? Well, the idea here is to come up with a word that will move you, a North Star to guide you. You have it chiseled into a token and then beautifully wrapped around your wrist. Every time you look at it, you'll be motivated. These bracelets are a highly affordable way to get you where you want to go. Where are we going on the podcast this week? To the Sahara Desert and beyond. My guest is Charlie Engel, a man who routinely smashes through the limits of human endurance. Get this, Charlie ran across the Sahara, the whole thing. But he had no idea at the time that his journey would help create a billion-dollar nonprofit that brings water and sanitation to those who need it. Today's podcast is way more than the story of an ultramarathoner. There are so many uplifting aspects to it. Charlie also talks about what it took to overcome a terrible addiction that once threw him into a spray of bullets. There's a great deal more to his story that you can read in Charlie's book, Running Man, a lot more, but this podcast will give you a nice taste. I caught up with Charlie in Durham, North Carolina, and got so excited when he laid out the blueprints of his next great adventure. This time... He's going to journey from the lowest place on the planet, the Dead Sea, to the highest, Mount Everest. It's a 4,500-mile trip that he'll do on foot, kayak, and mountain bike. He calls it 5.8 because when you measure it vertically, it's only 5.8 miles, the 5.8 miles that everybody on Earth lives within. Oh, man, he got me hooked just by describing it. You never know. At some point, I just might be joining him. Bottom line here is you're about to hear a story about a man with much potential who squandered it, got it back, and is making a difference in the world with each step he takes. So let's get straight to Charlie Engel. The man with 200,000 miles on his feet. 
How does that feel? <laughs> my feet hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen my feet have seen a lot. You know, we're looking up at a very interesting map of Africa uh, because it doesn't have any of the borders that you normally see on a map. It's just the names of the countries laid out in the shape of the countries. And I'm looking at the West Coast, country of Senegal, and then imagining you running from there all the way to Egypt, basically across the Sahara Desert. You did it. I did indeed. Who knew Africa was that big? I mean, first of all, but- How uh, long did it take you to do that? check the map. Um, you know, it took 111 days. So I, I originally planned that journey for, just to tell you how far off I was, I planned it for 90 days with 10 days off. And it took 111 days with zero days off. Oh, and, you know, the, no days off. Uh, nearly two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days. So it was... And was temperature up to like 140 degrees? Wow, you really nailed it. It was not ambient, but ground temperatures in uh, Senegal and Mauritania and part of Mali were about 140. And uh, we get cold at night too. But then uh, Mauritania was an Islamic Republic and it actually had roads. So it was a little more of a straight shot. But then when you got into Mali and Niger and like the true heart of the Sahara Desert, there wasn't a there wasn't a road. There wasn't anything. I would just take a a bearing with my compass and head east and wherever we went is where we went. And uh, it was across, you know, massive dune fields. And, you know, we were at any given time, probably 500 miles from a, from an electric light. And it was absolutely magical. You know, were the stars different there? than Un Unbelievably different. Seriously. Like, like just more, I mean, Look, I guess they're up there all the time, right? But I mean, we don't see them, certainly in this hemisphere, the way you do in the desert. I, I got so good at, at the end of the day and the sun would start going down, I'd lay this little thin foam mat down on the sand and I didn't like to sleep in the tent. I like to sleep just out on the sand and I would look up and I, I got to where I could see the, I could identify the space station. So I would see the space station go by a couple of times. And there were like six or seven other satellites that I could make out in addition to the stars. And going all the way across Africa, you know, allowed me to, to be a, very much an amateur astronomer, but to really watch the, the sky shift. Well, the, the other thing is there's no pollution. I can remember looking up, at the stars in the Sahara and thinking, man, this is what people were seeing thousands of years ago. And we can't, Everywhere. <laughs> and we, we can't have that now. No, 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 that's what, yeah, that's what everybody saw thousands of years ago. And now only a, a select few, and, and ironically, we would consider those select few to be, uh, you know, somehow, um, not less than, but uh, to be that, that that we're privileged and they're not. I would argue the opposite. You know that they they are very privileged in not having the 
constant communication and the, you know, the nomadic life, my, my favorite saying from the Sahara, the native Tuaregs who've lived there for many thousands of years, you know, actually have a saying that basically says that houses are the graves of the living. And I love that. <clears throat> I love that sentiment because they're nomadic people. And like, it's so foreign to them to actually have a single place that like you would call home. And, you know, their home is the desert. And it's, it's certainly a hard life by, by most any standard that we would judge. Yet that freedom of that mental freedom that they have that goes along with their physical freedom, it's not like they're nomadic and they sit around wishing they weren't, <laughs> you know, because there are towns, you know, if you, if you didn't want to be, you don't have to be. But to them, that's genuine freedom of life is to be able to move where you want to go, when you want to go. How did it come for you to <clears throat> want to run across the Sahara Desert? Oh, man. Well, it's, it is the, I, I consider it the linchpin of my existence in a way. I spent a long time wanting to get there. And then I've spent a long time, 2007 is when that crossing was. And I've spent a long time since then sort of getting over it. And uh, I got there by, in the shortest possible terms, through addiction, which is a maybe an odd uh, segue, but I, I don't I, think so for reasons that we'll go into later. Because I, I just ran a Spartan obstacle race, uh, and I, I congratulations. Came, well, thanks. It was a beast. It was fourteen miles and uh, more than thirty obstacles, and I really had some thoughts about addiction that never occurred to me before until I was doing that race, but. You go back and explain how addiction took you to the Sahara. Yeah, so I was I was that I grew up here in North Carolina, where you and I are sitting at this moment, and uh, I was a good high school athlete, uh, good student, you know, student government government president. You know, I did all those things that kind of you're supposed to do, and uh, went to school at UNC Chapel Hill as a 17 year old freshman, and kind of expected uh, a special welcome because I was so awesome. <laughs> and I got there and found 4,000 other freshmen, pretty much just like me, you know, who were uh, gifted in one way or another. And what I figured out pretty quickly was that I was pretty darn average. And, you know, not in every way. As it turns out, I was a, an amazing, like, first-team All-American drinker. So... I found out quickly that I that I actually, uh, yeah, I had this this thing I could drink more than anybody else, and that turned in the in the '80s to cocaine use in college, which was pretty ubiquitous at the time, and uh, that sent me on a, as I like to say, and I mean I I don't you know that's all it's a long winding story, but the shortest version is just that I think I spent ten years after that first real cocaine high, chasing that feeling. Well, what was that first feeling like? What was the first time that you saw cocaine and took it in? Yeah, it was like, a, I mean, when it hit my brain, 
Actually, it's a funny story. The very first time I did it, it did not actually affect me. Like I only did a tiny amount. Some guy so handed like, me a little. Was this like with the razor blade? It was blade? in a bullet, actually, which is is this little gnarly drug contraption that is shaped like a bullet that has a a chamber that you basically just put up to your nose and sniff. So it 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 uh, you know it's they've been around forever. But that time, I mean, I was actually relieved. I was drinking a lot at the time, but I was drinking. Not that unlike my friends in college. I mean, I was in college and I was going to class, making okay grades, partying a lot. And at that time, I could still call it partying, I think. And it wasn't until later that really turned to, to drinking. And I was relieved the first time because I actually thought, you know, I didn't want cocaine to screw up my drinking. <laughs> like, you know, I was pretty settled with how I drank why I drank, what I drank and and how much I drank. And well, this, how much were you drinking? <clears throat> I mean, I was, you know, I was probably drinking four or five nights a week in college and, you know, going out uh, downtown Chapel Hill and hitting the bars. By the way, the drinking age was 18 at that point in North Carolina. So that dates me a little bit. But as I that that drinking age actually chased me in college when I turned 19, it turned to 19. And when I turned 21, it turned to 21. So they they moved it to 21 just behind me. So I managed to, you know, stay ahead of the curve. <laughs> oh, man. But the second time I did cocaine, everything changed. And it it was like a it was like a Klieg light going off in my head. And it was this this clarity of purpose and of uh, focus that I had never felt before, along with the euphoria that I would later learn is is triggered by, you know, that that center, that part of the brain that cocaine hits. But in short, you know, I was going to cure cancer, um, you know, pay my dad back every dime I'd ever borrowed, um, you know, make up for all the wrongs that I'd ever done and, you know, and change the world. I mean, that's how you feel when you're in the in the grips of that high and again i i think i spent the next 10 years trying to recreate the circumstances the feelings the emotions and the and that high and it's impossible you know you have to do more you have to it just doesn't work for an addict and i became an addict a very high functioning addict. i was the addict that led every company in sales and you know, I was the top Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years and out in California. And I, you know, I, I figured that if I could balance my prodigious drug use on one hand with overachievement on the other hand, then I couldn't have a problem. You know, I mean, how could that, they don't fire the top salesman, right? Which turned out not to be true. <laughs> and how did it, start to spiral downward. Well, you know, it it really became this thing where uh, I did what any good self-respecting drug addict does. I started my own business so that I could really then be in control of my my schedule. And crazy as it was, I started a business chasing um, hailstorms around the world. <laughs> so, and I did it for 25 years. I did it for a long time. But in those first years of doing it, uh, primarily in the U.S., some in Europe and Australia, uh, I had this incredible 
freedom. And I was making more money than I had ever thought I what would make. What gives you the idea to chase hailstorms? Well, I'd been in the car business. Right. And I was in Monterey, California. And actually, the military base out there closed down, Fort Ord, which like nobody thought that would ever happen. You know, this is back when in the eight, late 80s, early 90s, when they were closing some bases. And and it basically sort of decimated the area. And, and it was as simple as a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, I know this guy who's got this new kind of business, this technique <laughs> of doing this. And I'm like, sure. I mean, like, so I ended up being the first company in the world that actually specialized in repairing hail damaged cars. So I would I, I would do contracts okay. with insurance companies. It was called paintless dent repair. You know, you don't paint the cars, you you fix them, you know, with with manual labor and uh, it's an almost an artistic technique. But it it allowed me to make a lot of money. It allowed me to go to so you're cities all over the world for hailstones. How do you do that, man? You just you you back then. I mean, now on my on my smartphone, oh. I could tell you where every hailstone hit in the last five years. Like literally, where every hailstone hit in this country. Um, Twenty five years ago, State College, PA, actually was the the weather epicenter of the United States, and I would get a fax every morning that would tell me where hail may have hit the day before. <laughs> and so during the spring and the summer, I would pick up the phone. I'd get on the phone and I'd call, I was the best salesman there was. You know, I would call the Chamber of Commerce, I'd call car dealerships and I'd say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about buying a hail damaged car. I heard you guys got some hail. And I would just try to verify that there was actually damage. And when I'd figure out what the damage was, I'd, I wouldn't even tell the dealer on the phone because they'd be getting 25 calls. I would just get in my car and I would drive, you know, 1500 miles if that's what it took, you know, in, in 24 hours and go set up a shop and bring in 15 or 20 guys to fix cars. And, but it created this dynamic where I'd go into cities like Denver and Wichita and, you know, I'd go in, I was still drinking. I'd go in, but I, I, you know, my joke was quitting, you know, I tried to quit a ton. I mean, I always wanted to quit because nobody, I was a, living a pretty miserable addict's lifestyle. And so my joke was that, you know, quitting's easy. I've done it a hundred times, <laughs> you know, and, and it was this idea that, that, you know, sooner or later I would get it, but I always quit because at that time I was married. I got married when I was 25 to my first wife. And she wanted me to quit, and and but she'd grown up in a household with a, a father who drank a lot, so there was a comfort level to my craziness. And you know, my boss wanted me to quit, and friends wanted, me to, you know, and it, and it. So every time I tried to quit, it really wasn't for me. And finally, my son, my first son was born. You and I were talking about kids before we started, and my first son, Brett, was born, and you know, I made a commitment. I said, I'm not gonna you know, raise a kid in this environment, you know, I just can't, it's not fair. And so basically I looked at him as my savior, you know, he was going to save me because surely I wouldn't drink and do drugs, you know, having this beautiful baby boy in, in the world. And, uh, of course he knew nothing about it, his responsibility, but a couple of months into his life, I'd gone to a job in Wichita and he and his mom, came to visit and they spent a week and I just remember holding this beautiful boy and, and being so immersed in love and feeling 
things that I'd never felt before because as an addict, I, I, I really just assumed that I was missing those parts. Like I felt broken in, in those ways and that I wasn't worthy of that kind of love. And so best week of my life, I, I drive them to the airport and uh, full of hope and fire towards this new life. And I drive straight to the hood where I spend the next six days smoking crack and wow. killing myself. And that binge ended with the police and three bullet holes in my car from, you know, a guy who was trying to shoot me. And, you know, and it was, it was in that moment, it was the clearest thought in such an unclear circumstance that I'd ever had in my life that, you know, Brett can't save me, you know, that no, nobody was going to come save me. And that, you know, I had a choice and I could either, I was going to, I was going to live or die. And I needed to figure out what the hell I was going to do. So you had your aha moment. I did. And no burning bush or anything like my car might have been on, my car might have been on fire though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how does running move it forward? I, so I went to an AA meeting literally that night. I went to a meeting. You and went I got, straight from the bullet holes. To I an did AA that meeting. night. Yeah, and well, I. Well, you always get to places fast. Well, That's you know one what? Thing about you, I had been to a couple of AA meetings in the past, but I was I was baffled by the fact that people in there actually seemed like they had quit drinking. Like I was there to learn how to like moderate my drinking or to, <laughs> oh you know, God. drinking was really screwing up my cocaine use. So I was, I was determined to find a way to manage this. I didn't get it. So for the first time ever, I actually went to a meeting with a, an open heart and real genuine curiosity of like, okay, how have these people done this? And then the next morning I got up and I put running shoes on and I went for a run. I had, been, I had been a runner right. in high school. So I've been a good runner in high school in North Carolina. And even in college at Carolina and, you know, I, I grew up with a grandfather who was the head track coach at North Carolina for like 40 years. And he died when I was young. But the, the way we do legacies and families, you know, we tell our kids, oh, your grandfather was a, a track coach and, you know, you're going to be a runner. And I, I heard that a lot growing up and it, it did embed in me. And I used running even in my worst years of addiction. I would binge for three months. I'd clean up for a couple of months. And then running was that thing that I would use, like almost as a combination of penance and, um, and fitness. So you always knew that you could flip the switch and turn it back to running. I did. And that must have been something that gave you a sense of power because you know, I can flip the switch. Yeah, it was dangerous. You're absolutely right. Nobody's ever put it that way. You've that's actually a really interesting way to put it because it did give me a sense of almost if not invincibility, but that I could always turn this around. And it wasn't until the combination of having a 2-month-old boy um, you know, actual bullets for the first time why, being shot why, at me. Why were bullets being shot at you? You know, it was just a drug deal. It was okay. just, I'd gone back to the same dealer over six days and probably spent $1,500 or something, or maybe more than that. And like, I mean, you keep going back to the same person long enough and you pull out, you know, two, $300 every single time. It doesn't take a genius 
to figure out, hey, this guy is, this guy seems to have a never-ending supply of money. And so he finally just decided that he would take, you know, all of it. And so that's how that went down. So yeah, and one of the bullets like hit my door and like grazed my leg. And I mean, it was, I would like to say that it was a genuine way, true wake up call, but you know, addicts don't work that way. There's, if, if fear- Oh, of, so, so he, he's trying to rob you of all your money. Correct. But did you run to your car or- Yes, yeah, so I was in the car. All the deals took place oh, through the window the, of oh, my car. Okay. You know I, what I, I mean? So he pulls out a gun. Right, and then you, you know, hit the gas. And I just, uh, yeah, and I was, I was streetwise. I, I, I had not gone, you know, 10 years of basically doing street dealing and buying and all of that and not learned a few things. So I, you know, I- I checked things, although I will say, man, you know, I, I was a clean cut twin, you know, twenties, uh, white kid in uh, a Toyota forerunner and driving around the hood in every single major city in this country from LA to Orlando. And not one time ever, ever, ever did I get pulled over. Not once ever. And I, I like to make the point, uh, not indelicately, that, you know, had I been a different color, had I been, had a lot of things been different in my life, my ass would have been, you know, serving a 25 year sentence for some, you know, small time drug charges because I was still small time. I wasn't, there was nothing big time about what I was doing. I was a drug addict who would buy a few grams of cocaine or crack at a time, you know, snort them or smoke them and then go get more. I mean, that's what I did. So, but that's what a lot of guys did who are still sitting in jail today. So I, you know, I recognize the inequities in, so in that part. You get away that night. Yeah. And you go to the AA meeting mm -hmm. and you open your heart next morning get in the running shoes and you start running. Just like Forrest Gump, you, you just start and never stop. Yeah, well, here's how it changed though. And I don't- Was this before Forrest Gump movie? It was, oh, it was, okay. yeah. Right. He, he stole my idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I actually spent for three straight years, I did those two things every day. I went to a meeting and I ran every day for three years without missing a single day. And during that three years, I ran something in the neighborhood of 30 marathons. And uh, my joke is always that, you know, because clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control. <laughs> and but but slowly I built a life. You know, I, I had this structure, this thing that I wanted to do that I wanted to do every single day. And the, the role running had served during my addiction years was it, it probably stopped me from dying just because I would finally get so fed up and, you know, with the lifestyle I was living and this terrible poison I was putting into my body that I, I found that running was the fastest way to, you know, to flip that over on its head. And I could get in shape. It was in my twenties, you know, things were easier. I could get in shape and in two or three weeks, I would be like a new man. And, but the danger there, as you said, is like, ah, I feel like a new man, you know, I surely I can, I'm working hard. I can have a couple of beers. And despite the fact that not one time in my entire life did I ever have two beers, like ever, like I never even understood the point of that. 
like I wasn't capable of it. You know, two always led to 20. There was never an in-between for me. Yet, every time I would say, this time will be different. So you, anytime you went out, it was basically a case of beer. I drank to get drunk. I didn't drink for, I mean, there was a social aspect of it to a certain degree, but I did not have an off switch. And here, the greatest lesson I learned during those three years, what I really tried to do was run the addict out of me, if that makes any sense. I tried to like, like if I could have pictured, if he could have taken a scalpel or a laser and like cut that part of me out, like I wanted it gone. So every time I went out the door for a run, I ran as freaking hard as I could. Like, like a, again, a, a penance, a purging of sorts. I, I wanted to eliminate that part of myself. And it took that three years for me to figure out that in fact, the addict is all the best parts of me. You know, my addiction is, and I, I genuinely, I don't just believe this. I know it for a fact. My addictive nature actually makes me good at things. This is what enabled you to find out about the hailstorm and drive 1,500 totally. miles across totally. the country. And to actually believe that I could do that. I mean, who the hell thinks that running across the the entire Sahara Desert, almost 5,000 miles, why would anyone think that's like a good idea? And did you, when you thought about running <laughs> across the Sahara Desert, was that the ultimate cleanse? Absolutely it was. Another great way to put it. I, I had never put it exactly that way, but it was. You know, I wanted to scrape my insides out. I wanted to clean every corner and I, I was in this perfect storm, no pun intended, of hailstorms, but this perfect storm of um, addiction recovery and traditional 12-step means, which meant that I was doing hard emotional work. I was working with a sponsor who was making me write this shit out and say it out loud. And the old saying, you're only as sick as your secrets was his mantra. So like every crappy thing that I could remember that I had done I talked about those words came out of my mouth and I disclosed them to another human being. And the, the, the power in letting that loose drove me ultimately to want to, to figure out a way to cleanse even farther, just so I could fill up with something new and better. And, you know, I still, you know, most addicts, I'm 26 years clean and sober at this point, and most addicts like me still have a level of insecurity. I don't, I don't sit around every day and worry that I'm going to get drunk, but I do sit around, well, I don't sit around or rarely sit around, but I, I, whatever, I ponder this idea of still not being good enough somehow of. Is that where it all started? Sure. Absolutely. You know, and I, I grew up in a household that where there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, with a father who wasn't big on praise. And so I went, you know, over the top to be, you know, all everything academically and sports and, and every possible way I could to get attention. And that didn't work either. And so it, it was this, you know. So fairly, you're the ultimate type A personality. In that sense, I was. Yeah, I wanted. I, 
at that point in my younger years, I wanted achievement for how it made me look. Because I didn't understand how it made me feel. There wasn't any as a, you know, again, I, I drank so much during those 12 years from 17 to 29. If I had a feeling, I drank it away. It didn't matter if it was a good feeling, a bad feeling, it's raining, it's sunny. There was always a reason to tamp that feeling down. So I've spent the 26 years since then, if not making up for it, certainly trying to uh, be fully present and, and not be shy about having every experience that I can. And that's why I'm not afraid to take on something like the Sahara. My biggest fear in the Sahara, <clears throat> so I was working as a producer for, well, so I ran those first three years then I basically decided the short version, I wanted to like see how far I could go. So I started to run 50 milers, 100 milers. I did. Is there, this is what I'm very curious mm. about. Because in this Spartan race that I just ran, it was 14 miles. I felt better at mile 12 than I did at the start. <clears throat> and if you would have told me, okay, you got to run another 14 after this. I think I could have done it. Yeah. And simply by just putting one foot in front of the next, just like I had been, I, I don't know that I would say I was addicted to it, but it was, in my mind, almost like eating a donut or something with a lot of sugar in it, and you have it and you want more. And the steps became like that, only it wasn't, Sugar, they were just steps. It was a healthy addiction. Are you going through something similar to that? Or was that just my experience? No, yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, you really nailed it. And I think it is an addictive experience for a variety of reasons. There are, there are absolute scientific physiological things going on, endorphin release and things that your body is feeling that you actually can't get any other way not through a drug, not through, you know, booze or sex or any other thing. It doesn't come that way. There's a, there's a release of, of, of tension, of anxiety, of uh, just, just everything that you went through in that, in that 14 miles. The interesting thing is with, a, with that race, I'm guessing too, that you had to take in some calories at some point. Did you eat anything? I'm you just know curious. What? I got these little <clears throat> energy gels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would pop them occasionally. Yeah. And it it really psychologically helped me through it. Yeah. I'm sure it was filled with sugar or caffeine. I was probably no, but you know what? I think those were I think Cliff is probably the sponsor. And those That's are it. those they're are good. Those, they're yeah. they're a good company and they, they make good products. And I mean, so it's it's sugar, but it's clean. Um, but it is interesting how you, those little bursts of calories are really important to, you know, your, your mind and your body needs it. And cause you will run out, you know, you hit, you hear about hitting the wall and marathons all right. the time. There's a similar, you know, 14 miles and, and 30 or whatever obstacles is pretty similar to running, you know, running 26 miles or, I mean, there, I would say, I would argue even harder in some ways um, because you're doing these bursts in between and a burst is relative to you. It doesn't matter if you're slower or faster than other people. It's you're doing what you can do. So the effort is basically the same. Right. 
And so I, you know, I found, and maybe you'll find the same thing, even with Spartan racing, maybe, you know, Iceland's coming up uh, pretty <laughs> soon. You, you could find I, yourself I in Iceland. That day. I, can't, <laughs> oh, darn. I can't be in Iceland. I, That's a 24 hour race. We actually, booked a speaking those. gig. I was thinking about that. We, had we should it, do an ultra next. You, you my, should, you should do a, a no, Spartan ultra. Is two beasts. Exactly. Right. So you would just turn other. right around and do that just course do again. again. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about that is, okay, so that would be what, 28 miles, but I would already know the course. Yeah. And there would be nothing to worry about because I've already seen it. Yeah. And I know I can go through it. Yeah. I guess I just need those, those energy chews. Well, and it's sure. not twice as hard. You know, people always say, well, how do I start doing like a 50 miler? I can't imagine doing two marathons. And I'm like, well, it's it's not twice as hard as a marathon. Why? It's different. It's just different because you there's a pacing aspect. Anything longer than 20 miles, 20 miles is really for pretty much everybody the limit of the amount of like glycogen that you can store. So basically energy that you can store through food. You always hear about carb loading and whatever. That's a lot of that is overblown, but this isn't a, we're now not having a nutrition conversation. We can do that another day. But in general, you can store enough things to burn for about 20 miles. So to run a 50 miler or to run a 28 mile Spartan race, you've got to be taking in two or 300 calories per hour is the, is kind of the, you know, normal thinking. So whether that's a bar or some gels or a drink of some type, or combination of those things. So the point being, doing two marathons back to back, doing running 50 miles, it becomes a thinking person's game. Like you have to prepare and it becomes almost a chess match with your own body. You've got to sustain it with nutrition and hydration and pacing. Because again, you can't, you know, I'm assuming that you cross the finish line after your 14 miles and in general, you cross that line and you were spent. It doesn't mean you couldn't have gone farther, but you know, in general, you were you, you were done. And a couple of minutes later, it's like, holy cow! Then you, like you mentioned, right. there's as that come down, I right? Stopped. As yeah. soon as I stopped, it was like a balloon being deflated, not popped, just deflated. Yeah. The air coming yeah. out yeah. of it, and then I would say a minute later, I'm already freezing. Yeah. And interesting, right? Looking at photos of myself, um, you could tell you see the change. Yeah. yeah. Well, how often do you see a race when you when you watch? I mean, it's actually annoying to me to watch the Boston Marathon and watch these guys run, you know, two oh five. And they look fine two minutes later. <laughs> That's not a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the normal the normal person or or. More to the point, you see, there's that old uh, Julie Moss uh, Iron Man tape where oh, she's, she's you know, crawling, crawling right? So she knees. makes it, or, or how often someone crosses the finish line and collapses. Right. Yet if they knew that the race was twice as long as the one that they just ran, I don't care what it is, for whether it's a mile or 10 miles, or if they knew it was twice as long, then they'd collapse after that length of time. Like, so there's a, there's a combination of psychological and physiological things going on where you, whether you think about it or not, like if you do an ultra and you're doing two beats, you know, back to back, 
psychologically, you know, when you're at mile 10, you're not almost finished. Whereas the other day when you did the race, yeah, you see mile, mile 10, 10 you're thinking, saying, I okay, got this. That's right. That's you're not true. allowing yourself that thought at mile 10 right. of 28. You're right. At mile 20, you're thinking, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. You know, so there is, it, it's amazing what the mind, you know, can will the body to do. The body, though, cannot do the opposite. And that's the fascinating part. Like if you don't take care of the body and what that means in a really long event is nutrition and hydration. If it's a multi-day event, getting rest as much as you can, uh, all those pieces of it. And and also simply never allow. I mean, it sounds easy somehow, but like never allowing that thought of quitting like never real. I'm not saying that we don't all think of it. I do hundred milers regularly. And I, I actually say that I do them because I know for sure two or three times during that race, I'm going to want to quit and I want to get to that place. And then I want to find a way to get beyond it. Like that is to You're me. You're looking forward to that moment. Absolutely. I, and it's not that I want. That's where the victory is. It pushing is. Pushing past that yeah. moment. Who the hell cares about somebody who makes something look easy, first of all? I mean, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to hear the story about how easy it was. I I think that it, this is all about even what you you experienced the other day and what I've experienced many times. It boils down to one thing. Share the suffering. You know, share the struggle is a better way to put it in my mind. I think that not just in athletics, but in this um, social media world that we live in where and lots of people talk about this, but where, you know, life just looks too freaking oh, good for a lot of people. Everybody's perfect. I want to do the opposite. <laughs> I want to show as much as possible the struggle because I think that's way more relatable because everybody feels it. Everybody has those anxiety, maybe with the exception of a few super elite, best in the world at their sport, you know, type of people. Um, you know, I think that most people have that struggle. And that that's why when I'm out there, I want to turn the camera on. Running across this era, I, I kept the video diary, which a lot of it got used. Backtrack it to the, this point where you're running 50 mile races and 100 yeah. mile mm -hmm. races. And now what gets into your head? I am going to cross the Sahara. I was doing, it's actually a funny little story. I was doing a race and across the Amazon jungle <laughs> and it was a seven day stage race across a big chunk of the Amazon. And so like tour de France, every day started and finished a prescribed distance. Winner was determined by cumulative time. So at the end of like day three, bunch of us are laying around in these jungle hammocks, you know, sweating our butts off at 120 degrees and 100% humidity. And just some stranger, some guy says, hey, you know, would you ever consider running across the Sahara Desert? Because he had been to the Sahara recently at a, a race that he did in Niger. And I, I actually turned to him and said that, dude, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Like you'd have to be a complete idiot to even consider something like that. And so, you know, of course I considered it and, and like, uh, you know, I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I got back to the U S you know, a week later after the race and I started Googling and I, I wait, was I Googling in 2005? I don't know if I was or not. I was, I was researching. I don't know if I was Googling or not, but 
I was trying to find out if anybody had run across. And, and as it turned out, you know, by any evidence I could find, no one had ever done it before for, for good reason, as it turns out. <laughs> and I began to just tell people I took possession of the idea for no with no evidence of my actual ability to be able to do it, I just started telling people I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara Desert that I wanted to be. Maybe I didn't say it was going to be, but I said I wanted to be. And I wanted to be that person. And I finally told the right person. I was working as a producer for ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition at the time. So I was sort of in the production world. And a friend of a friend knew this guy, James Mall, who was an Academy Award-winning documentary director. And I got an introduction. And I went in and gave the absolute worst pitch in history. I was late. I was, I couldn't find his office. I, you know, I get there 15 minutes late at a 30 minute meeting. And I, you know, and I just basically, as I like to say, I like vomited on his desk. I'm like, you know, Sahara, Torig, sand, heat, never been done before. You know, it's going to be my Everest. You know, I mean, I don't know what I said, but I basically was dejected by the time it was over and he stood up and he stuck out, stuck out his hand and he said, I'll do it. And a week later he called and said that Matt Damon wanted to be the narrator and, and, uh, and ultimately executive produced the project. And later on, later on, Hans Zimmer actually did the score for the film. So to be clear, I've got like, I got three Academy Award winners attached to a film about, about me running across sand. <laughs> and, and I have no, I think it's possible, but how, how no the hell idea. do I know? Right. I mean, even to get all the, the right visas to cross. Yep. And I'm sure you're crossing <clears throat> countries where there's no designated border. No. You're just going across. No, I mean, there's no, the, the biggest issue that we had, in fact, we, we did make a partnership with the United Nations and they helped us facilitate some things, but we never got permission to go into Libya. So we start in Senegal, Western, West Africa, on the coast of Senegal. There's a little spit of the Sahara Desert in a place called San Luis, Senegal. And I wanted to make sure that every single step from end to end was within the confines of what was considered the Sahara. So not most of the Sahara, but like all of it. And so we were only in Senegal for a day and then we go into Mauritania and Mauritania is an Islamic Republic. And so we don't have, we got all these native Tuaregs from Niger who are part of our crew. They don't have passports. These people, they're desert dwellers. They have ID cards. So we got stuck at that border for half a day and, you know, ended up have to make our mileage, had to run through the night. But ultimately, we continue to make our way and we get to Agadez, Niger, which is like the, the geographic center point. And we've got 500 miles still to Libya. You know, have to head northeast to Libya, but we don't have permission. We've never heard from the Libyans like they've never said no, but they've also never said yes. And it was the it was sort of the uh, it was the most difficult part of the journey because i had two teammates the three of us ran the entire way together a taiwanese friend of mine a canadian friend and and uh honestly they they both had thoughts of quitting you know because this idea of we don't have permission to go into libya so why should we continue uh, plus there was and, and some, you couldn't have stayed south of it that was the sudan which at the time, 
you know, to go through Chad and the Sudan, right? In that area, it, it's the we checked on it, and I, dude, I was so determined. I actually looked into going north up to through Tunisia. Algeria and Tunisia, <laughs> and I was going to get on a. I kid you not, I was going to get on a ship and run in circles on the ship as we as we boated past Libya and landed in Egypt. Like seriously, I was. But but really to the point, I think this is the the if there's a lesson here, it was dangerous talk to be talking of quitting. And for me, and this is my addict again, very clearly coming to the surface, like I told them I'm taking, you know, you guys quit if you want. I'm taking this box of Snickers bars and that camel and I'm going to continue and if I get to the border of Libya and I get turned away, I got no problem with that. I can live with having gone as far as I was allowed to go and knowing that there was nothing else I could do. No, no problem. But with my addict brain in particular, had I quit 500 miles short, I'd still be fine trying to find a way today to go back there and and finish that. Like it would have driven me nuts. How many camels did you have? So we had we had camels with us from time to time, but our the Touaregs to, to be to be blunt, actually Toyota was a sponsor, so they had more land cruisers than camels. Okay, but the cool thing was we actually went on a on a route in Mali and Niger through Timbuktu through just these these ancient incredible places where uh, salt had ruled the world for thousands of years. Salt was way more valuable than gold for the longest time. So these these salt caravans that were uh, well over a thousand miles long uh, still exist today. And when you're out there, you see these these uh, salt mines and these camel caravans with people basically still living. And ultimately, they're living the exact same lifestyle they were a thousand years ago. So maybe, maybe there's an electric stove somewhere. I don't know, but, um, we, so three days before we get to Libya, we get word that we're being allowed into Libya. And so, you know, I, I'm thrilled. We cross into Libya. It's quite funny. It's in the, it's in the film about the experience. Um, there's two just beat to hell oil drums with flags sticking out of them. I'm like, that's the border. <laughs> so it took us, you know, over three, 3,000 miles or whatever to get to that spot. <laughs> and it was about as uh, anticlimactic as it could be. And how many hours are you running every day? Basically 12, 12 to 13. And there's not only heat and cold, but it's sand. It lit- I mean, anybody who's ever run on the beach I mean, we spent thousands of miles running through deep sand and it screws with your mind, you know, because it's exactly what you you think. You know, it's it's this constantly feeling like every step is only half a step because you you slip and you you know, your body things were sore all the time because it wasn't like straightforward running, you know, in sand, you know, you've got all these ancillary supporting muscles and tendons that are always basically keeping you upright. And, uh, and those stayed sore for months for 111 days. We were all sore. And I, I mean, tendonitis, a lot of overuse injuries because we, we essentially ran nearly 50 miles a day for that entire period of time without taking one single day off. And some of that was because honestly of production, 
issues. You know, I mean, every day we're out there costs money. And so I, I felt great pressure as the expedition leader and the person that sort of brought all this together and we're way behind schedule. Uh, although quite frankly, I knew, uh, you know, the secret that I knew was that, you know, once we, once we started, unless we were a hundred days past due, nobody was going to pull the plug on it because you've already spent like the money is spent, you know? So whatever the budget was, if, if you need to get a couple hundred thousand more dollars so that we can finish the expedition, somebody's going to find a way to do that. What were you eating along the way? <clears throat> well, that's a great question too, because we, we went to the uh, Gatorade sports science labs for testing in Chicago beforehand. It's one of my, my favorite memories because I'll, I'll always remember sitting with this nutritionist who told me, okay, well, your body weight, your sweat rate, we figured all this out. And I think you just need to eat like 12,000 calories a day and you'll be able to maintain your weight. <laughs> I'm looking at her like, okay, you understand like I got like goat and couscous to, you know, to eat. And uh, that wasn't totally true. I mean, the, we we imported some things as much as we could pastas and rices uh our Tuareg guide was uh muhammad iksa was his name and just an amazing guy who would sometimes get into one of the vehicles disappear for half a day and come back with you know tomatoes and carrots and fresh vegetables which just seemed absolutely impossible you know, out there, but he, he knew the towns and the villages where, where those kinds of things might be. And, but I mean, in short, I probably averaged about 4,000 calories a day. And consequently I lost about 30 pounds. How much did you weigh when you started? About, I gained some weight to start. So about 185 and, and I was down about 155 at the finish. And, um, it, you know, what's fascinating though, and I don't think this will surprise you at all. Um, with your background, but the body is an incredibly resilient uh, piece of equipment. I mean, it's amazing. And so it, it, I think a couple of weeks into this expedition, this is my version of it, you know, it, it basically said to me, okay, I get it. You're trying to kill me. <laughs> so I'm going to start conserving every ounce of fat. Makes I'm going to start, you know, so it, it gained this rhythm where I actually started to feel better a couple of weeks into it when even though my I was averaging probably five or six hours of sleep a night um was there a best moment during this time oh my gosh yeah all well all the best moments were i, I think the highlight and this is one of those funny things as a, as a journalist i'm sure you relate to this idea some things are documented so well that you go back and watch it or see the photos or the video of it and you have a more vivid memory because you can see it, I think. Right. So it's a little bit of a, a trick of the mind that we, we read. No, I, I always point this out when I think of President Kennedy's funeral, uh, the image in my mind is of his three-year-old son, John John, saluting. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that I did not <clears throat> see that when it happened, yeah. I'm sure I saw the photo of it later on, yeah. but in my mind, that's the image yeah. Yeah. of that day. Beautifully said. And that's exactly what I mean. So, but to answer your question, um, there was a, an oasis village in Niger called Fashi. And Fashi was, I found it fascinating because first of all, 
2007, it seems like it's not that long ago, but the, there was no smartphone yet. There was no, or if there was, I didn't have one. And it, it was, you know, so we weren't quite in that world. So nobody knew we were coming. So we're running across the Sahara into villages. And it's not like, it's not like people are calling village to village to say, hey, there's some white dudes getting ready to run through your, your town, you know? And so we would just show up and- How would people respond? Oh my gosh, incredible. I mean, so the kids would come out and run with us and laugh and- so Ray, my Canadian partner, spoke French. And so a lot of West Africa speaks French. So there was a fair amount of communication going on in the first part of the run. But then as it it slowly morphed into Arabic as you got into, certainly into Libya and Egypt. But uh, even in Mali and Niger, there were a lot of towns that were sort of a mix of Arab and Black African coming up from places like Chad to the salt mines. I mean, mostly by choice. So this was this is just normal migration in Africa. But it was unusual to find, um, you know, what were called Black Africans living in the same place with people of Arab descent. And consequently, that made this town of Fashi, this little oasis village of mine, my favorite, because everyone lived, it seemed to me, in like perfect harmony. And it was, we run into this town, this oasis, and within five minutes, there are 250 children running with us. And I mean, from, you know, three years old to teenagers and I've got kids holding my hands and they're running and we're singing like songs and there's no, you can't, I mean, there's no actual communication other than just joy and they didn't want anything. And I, I, I feel compelled to <clears throat> tell you this. I know you've traveled a lot. You go into a village somewhere, you go into some place, especially in a, and I hate the world word third world country, but for expediency into a, a an impoverished area and you you're in a vehicle and you get out normally there are going to be people kids adults coming at you with their hand out they're they've learned that behavior you know it's not really what they want to be doing i i don't ever hold it against them for but it's intimidating for pe people a lot of times to be the one getting out of the car you know, running across Africa, you run into a village, nobody wants shit from you because A, you look like you don't have anything. <laughs> and B, there's this natural, like, uh, you're one of them. Like, they they don't have vehicles. They walk to get their water every day. They, you know, that's their life. So it's an interesting thing to be on their terms it, it humanized the situation in a way that I'll never forget. And I, even today, if I go scout some other country where I'm going to be running or whatever, I'll do my best to park on the outskirts of town and walk in or run in, even if it's just, you know, just for show, just because I'd rather see it and see how people respond to that than to see everyone turning to look at the, the shiny car driving into town. So what was it like when you were getting close to the end? Man, you asked me another tough, that's a, it was sad is what it was. It was sad. It was an interesting, we had fought for so long. I it had taken me two years and a couple of 
delays and just, you know, really turning my life upside down to actually get to the start even. So now that we were near the finish, what I found was an overwhelming r- relief, certainly. The addict sort of jumped out of me some. You know, I, what I wanted was joy. And I didn't really get that. What I got was relief of having accomplished this thing. And certainly pride of all three of us in three run, the odds of all three of us making it the entire way were pretty small. But but then finally putting my feet into the Red Sea and knowing that it was over. Like if I had turned around and started going back the other way, like there was no, there's no way to ever <laughs> recreate. <laughs> you can't what? recreate the feelings that you had. Was the Red Sea the finish line? It was. It was. When you put your feet in the water. We went from the Atlantic Ocean in Senegal, uh, standing you know, knee deep in that water, to diving into the Red Sea in Egypt. After two days earlier, having run through Giza and the pyramids by ourselves, three runners, the entire park was closed um, because it was early morning and they, we got special permission to actually run through the pyramids with not another soul in the entire place. And it was like, that sticks with me today, uh, as a, as a true high point too. I mean, I felt more connected to the planet and also felt more, um, uh, more small, you know, just, just, uh, almost insignificant in uh, in the shadow of those pyramids. And I don't know, it was nice. I like, I like to feel that way back to your star question, even too. what I loved about it is that feeling of, I need to keep making the most of this life, you know, because I'm really not that important. And, and it's not about being important. It's about having as many experiences as I can possibly have. Has that accentuated as time goes by? Because you're every minute you live, you have one less minute to live. And so do you start thinking, okay, how am I going to up the ante on this? Yes. I mean, in a way, and 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 life has accelerated time. You know, my grandfather, I remember when I was a kid telling me that time starts to move faster when you get older and it just does. It just does. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, Running a running a marathon or, or even a hundred miler, you know, there's something about getting to the halfway point, and you know, you, you're counting up to fifty miles, and then you're counting down from fifty one to a hundred. Like it's this this interesting thing. Well, that's good in almost every other way, except when it's <laughs> years. And so, yes, there is pressure at fifty six years old. I'm in, I'm in good shape. Um, you know, mentally, I'm still you know, fired up and motivated to continue my cultural exploration of the planet, because it's not about there's, there's tons of people that I, that can actually do what I do physically. You know, I would never be so bold as to say, you know, there's always somebody more talented physically and every other way. But this weird combination that I have, I think of addictive personality a willingness to share the struggle with other people. I enjoy storytelling. I like storytelling. And that's a lost art, you know, these days. You're a storyteller and you do an amazing job of it. And it's and it's a, it's just something that people don't slow down enough to take the time to do. So I want to keep going out there and finding new things to do. I have a new thing to do, by the way. I don't even know if you know what it is. Go ahead. It's... um. 
so my my new project um, is actually called 5.8. And I want to take one quick step back. You know, the Sahara was this physical undertaking, but Matt Damon and I co-founded H2O Africa, which we, you know, ultimately I spent a year after the film came out touring the film around and raising money. And so I raised about six and a half million dollars for H2O Africa. And today that nonprofit is known as water.org. And it just reached over a billion dollars in funding. And, you know, Matt is still very much involved. I'm involved, but on, you know, more in a uh, the periphery, but, um, so you're bringing water yes, all over the exactly. continent. It's not just water, it's water and sanitation because it's all about, you know, in third world countries, use that term again, uh, education really ends up being based, especially for girls on whether or not there's a they toilet get, to use. Right, right. I mean, quite frankly, if there's, you know, there's no sanitation, girls aren't going to school in most of those countries. That's just the way it is. So if they don't have a place to use the restroom and have, have hygiene at school and to have drinking water, if there's no drinking water, then they're going to be at home being that person walking six miles a day to get clean drinking water. So to fold that forward. So the point is a crazy, ridiculous, absurd idea of, hey, running across the Sarah sounds like a good idea, you know, helped uh, birth this idea of water.org and the, lar the largest clean water nonprofit on the planet, you know, and that's because it just needed a push. I mean, Matt Damon is the driving force because he's Matt Damon, but, you know, the idea came from me and I didn't do it. What's funny is I, I like to get back to this core thing too of, I ran across the Sahara Desert because I wanted to see if I could do it, nothing more. It wasn't for, you know, I wasn't trying to post social media. I wasn't trying to like, there wasn't anything to really prove. I just wanted to know if I could do it. So having the added benefit of attaching something like this, like water.org uh, and having that sort of be the legacy of it is fantastic. And I would love to say that I was brilliant and that I foresaw that entire thing. None of that is true. You know, I just went and did it. And I think if people more often just trusted that if they just go off and do things, you know, more good things will come from that. So the next project is called 5.8. And 5.8 is, is basically this idea of I'm going to go from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the planet. I'm going to swim out into the Dead Sea from the shore in Jordan. And I'm going to do a free dive to the lowest place that I can reach. And then I'm gonna come back up, I'm gonna swim back to shore and I'm gonna run about 2000 miles across the Arabian desert. And when I, <laughs> when I get to the tip of Oman, I'm gonna get into a kayak and paddle a thousand miles across the Indian ocean and land in Mumbai, India. And from Mumbai, I'll mountain bike to uh, Everest Base Camp. And from Everest Base Camp, I'll climb to the top of Everest. And so it will be a lowest place on the planet to the highest point on the planet expedition. And I call it 5.8 because it's, it's about 4,500 miles point to point. But in fact, it's only 5.8 vertical miles from the lowest place to the highest point. And you and I and everybody we know and everybody on the planet lives within this tiny little 5.8 mile sliver of space that surrounds the planet. We all live in that 5.8 mile space. 
And so it's this idea that, you know, I'm going to carry a, a flask of water from the Dead Sea and pour it out on the top of Everest and kind of symbolically join the ends of the earth and just try to do something that's meaningful to me and that's that's positive. And I don't I don't know what's going to come from it otherwise, but I know if I go off and do this, if I can pull it off, that something good will come from it. So no starting date, you're still in- the- There is a starting date now, and I'm sticking with this one. We've had to move it a couple of times because it is an expensive undertaking. So January 1st of 2020, so it's a little over a year away. Wow. I will be on the shore. I feel I feel like symbolically January 1st, a new decade. Um, I have a lot of interest from uh, brands. Um, in fact, you know, I was just out in L.A. recently at, um, you know, at Worlds where I've, I've spoke there um, and uh, had an opportunity to, to sort of present this idea to a lot of brands and a lot of folks in marketing. And the response has actually been phenomenal. So, you know, it's uh, there's still a long way to go. But I, I also think that from a production standpoint, um, it's it comes down once again to storytelling. I mean, the if I can share that struggle with people and do it properly, do it in a way that engages them and makes them want to come along for the journey, uh, I think that. Uh, I can bring a lot of people into the fold. Yeah, you know, it's 5.8 isn't about, we see so much human suffering and environmental devastation every single day. And I'm, I feel very strongly about both of those things. <laughs> However, there's so much of it out there. There's so much of it on the news every day. Nobody doesn't see it. And so I think, I think there's other experts that can show those things. What I want to show people is the, just amazing, magnificent 5.8 miles where we all live together and, and not to be too, uh, not to be naive, but my hope is that it can be something that brings people regardless of political beliefs and regardless of where they come from to have, get back to a place where we all think it's a good idea to take care of this little area where we live. Well, it really hits me as we close this up about the power of a story. And who knows what's going to come out of this, uh, but that's maybe the best part of the story. We got to go along with you to see what's going to happen. So I'll tell you what, we will run this podcast uh, around the 1st of January of this coming year. Perfect. So everybody knows a year from that point, you will be making that magnificent journey. And I hope to keep up with you because the story has just begun. Thank you. I, I, I can't tell you what that means to me. I, I know it'll be, uh, it'll be fun. Who knows? You might end up out there with me during part of it. So oh, I, I hear you have a, I hear you have a penchant for wanting to uh, get involved in things. So oh, I have a sneaky suspicion that you know oh, there, there may be a run or a bike or a paddle oh, in your future. I might, I might, maybe a hike into maybe, Everest Base Camp. Maybe I can meet you along the way. See. Yeah. Oh, see, that's where it comes. That's there how it go. all starts. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll see you out there. All right. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. 
Who knows? Maybe it'll take me to the top of the world. Also want to thank my sponsors. Go to myintent.org and see how affordably priced the compelling bracelet can be. It's exactly the sort of gift that can lead you on your own special journey. Myintent.org And remember, wherever you go, go there in Sportique. You will never understand how comfortable clothing can feel until you put on a pair of Sportique sweatpants or a comfy tee. Go to Sportique.com That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E dot com and get a glimpse of the meaning of comfort. Want to also give a shout out to next week's guest, Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's. Blake's trying to make the world better for all of us with a campaign to stop gun violence in America. Not by banning firearms, but by establishing universal background checks. 90% of Americans support universal background checks, and these checks are a proposed federal policy change. This change would require a background check every time a gun is sold. Now this stops the people who shouldn't be having them from buying them at gun shows and through direct selling methods. If you'd like to make America a safer place, go to toms.com to send a postcard to your representative. This is not a my side or your side kind of issue. Nine out of 10 Americans support universal background checks. If you're in that 90%, make your voice count. I want to thank Philip Lanos for the audio assistance while Luz Fleming goes cross country. Also want to thank Dolly Furstenberg in the office for getting out all those winning gifts in the Why Is Your Best Friend Your Best Friend competition. And setting up the Big Questions podcast page on Instagram. All you got to do is go to Instagram to find it. Type in Big Questions Podcast, and you'll be right there. We're just getting started, but we got a lot in development. The best is yet to come. See you next week, and cheers!